I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I was the kid who hung out with the math teacher and did, like, science problems for fun. And I was the girl who played football at lunch with the boys. I remember one time a, a bunch of girls, like, kind of gathered around. They're like, so we see you playing football. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, you know girls don't do that. And I was like, why wouldn't you? It's so fun. Like, I don't get it. It's really, really fun. Like, you should play. I, I guess the one thing I say about growing up in a different culture is that you don't know the rules of that culture and so you break all the rules and I think that was great for me so I did get kind of picked on a lot but not for being uh, from a different country but just for being strange. Party Sabeti is one of the most remarkable young women I've ever met. Born in Tehran she's a self-proclaimed math nut and she invented while still a graduate student a novel and powerful way of exploring our genetic code looking for genes that have evolved recently in human history. It was a breakthrough that played a major role in tackling the deadly outbreak of Ebola in Africa in 2014. But having fun has always been and continues to be a large part of her life. And the lab she runs in Cambridge, Massachusetts is well known as a playful and caring place to do cutting-edge genetic research. And she's also the lead singer and bass player in an indie rock band. I talked with Parties over an internet hookup to her lab at the Broad Institute in Cambridge. What I love about your work is that you take such a playful attitude to your work. And yet, that doesn't diminish in any way the seriousness of what you're doing. You're doing one of the most serious things in the world. I think it would be really good to start with what your work is about, because I just heard the term computational biologist oh, not long ago, maybe three years ago, and most of the people I know don't know what the term means. So how would you describe in plain words what you do? I'm essentially what they call it, another way of calling it is a data scientist. And the data that I happen to look at is genetic data. And genetics has a lot of data because the genome has just a ton of data. There's a, a long string of letters Um millions and billions of letters long that you're trying to mine looking for patterns. And so I develop statistics and algorithms that allow you to interrogate all that information and look for important biology, uh, things that increase your risk for certain diseases. There's all sorts of questions that you can ask um, by mining this huge data set. Do I have it? Am I close if I say you in particular have developed Pro, computer programs, algorithms that help you search through huge piles of data that would be difficult for a person to do with the naked eye, and you find patterns with these, with these algorithms, and the patterns tell you something about how our bodies have changed in fighting off horrible diseases like Ebola or loss of fever. Is that, am I close? Yeah, that's that's pretty spot on and much more articulate than I did. Um, <laughs> yes. no, so, yeah. I'm just trying to get it so I get it. But what amazes me about you, and, and I would imagine would amaze everybody else, is you made one of these really important breakthroughs in developing uh, an algorithm that did that. When you, I think when you were about 26, right? Yeah, around, around that age. Mm -hmm. That's. I mean, I was still figuring out how to tie my shoes. <laughs> so, I was probably doing that as well, so it doesn't mean, <laughs> I don't think scientists are immune to still needing to grow up. So how did you get involved in Ebola? 
what that's uh, on the other side of the world. What was what was your impetus to do that? So that was all part of this kind of like I said exploration and scavenger hunt kind of a feel to it because essentially. Uh, in one of the early scans I did of the human genome, I found one of the strongest signals of human adaptation to be to a virus called Lassa virus that I had uh. I had gone to medical school and I never even really remembered this virus. And it, it turns out it was like in one table in one book, but it's not really talked about. And then I thought, how could this virus that is I don't even know about be the most powerful evolutionary pressure on human populations? And so that took me to West Africa where I started studying the disease. When you say an, an incredible pressure on human, what do you, what do you mean? Well, it just there there is a particular mutation that looks like it really rose in prevalence very very fast in the West African population, mm. and so that kind of suggests to you there was a real reason, a real advantage to having it. Um, right. Okay. I'm sorry I interrupted. So no, you, you went you went to West Africa. So yeah. So then I had already been collaborating with folks in uh, countries like Senegal and Nigeria, um, and that I, I connected with one of my colleagues in Nigeria, Christian Happy, um, and uh, set out to work with him on it. And as we were thinking about it more, we came to believe that a lot of these viruses were circulating, including Ebola. Um, so at that time, we were building up capacity to detect anything in these hospitals where we were working. And just as we actually just garnered support to build up that surveillance capacity. Um, they was they declared an Ebola outbreak in Guinea, which is right near next door. So Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone all share a border. And we were pretty, um, you know, uh, aware of the risk that if that the outbreak could pour into Sierra Leone, and if so, we would see cases. And so my team immediately went out to Sierra Leone. We set up diagnostic capacity to... Um, to detect Ebola, both in Sierra Leone and Nigeria, with our, led by our teams there, our collaborators there. Um, and in basically late May of 2014, uh, the hospital identified a, the, uh, the first case in Sierra Leone. But the problem was that the, by the time it came to the hospital, it wasn't this one isolated case. It poured in. We had 14 cases, and then it started every week. We it was like doubling the number of cases coming into the hospital. Um, and so it, the the outbreak sort of exploded when it came into Sierra Leone and overtook the hospital. Is that when you lost several of your colleagues to Ebola? It, yeah, it was a little bit later, um, but uh, but essentially at that point, the um, the essentially the hospital became really overwhelmed. We were at, we were asked not to work there anymore because they were considered us research scientists. A lot of international aid came in, um, and in that time, just with this explosion of cases that came in, uh, there was. Um, uh, essentially, uh, the virus kind of moved through the ho the hospital staff, where you know some hospital staff became infected in another part of the hospital. But then it kind of suddenly a lot of the staff became infected, and um, and a number of our colleagues died in that process. And so, it was a lot of the care workers were at the highest risk. And you know, over the course of the outbreak, hundreds of care workers perished. In all the work you did trying to understand Ebola, was did it lead to your being able to? hold back Ebola? My group just tried to be part of a collective and to help, you know, stem the tide. And I think one of the big things we did was to release this large amount of data to the web uh, with uh, 99 genomes first and then hundreds later of the virus itself. And that's where you got, you know, the Obama saying the virus is mutating, people understanding that this thing is a volatile situation and it was transmitting from human to human. And so um, I'd like to think that it helped 
you know, in some ways to activate people, but also, you know, we got a lot of people developing diagnostics and uh, other therapies and vaccines using the data we made available. And so we're not, I think it was all part of the larger collective, but it was moving people to release data quickly to to be able to all move as fast as possible. Um, with the kind of data that we've uh, generated, we can help move better diagnostics forward and better vaccines forward, which is why we believe genomic data is really important because that is the blueprint of the virus. That's what it uses to do everything it needs to do and how we can pick it up and, and stop it um, and understand how it's transmitting. When you went to West Africa, I heard you t tell a story in an interview that was charming when you woke up one morning and you heard singing in the hotel. <laughs> tell, tell about that. Yeah, so it was on one of my first trips to Irua, which is a small village in West Africa where Lhasa is known to be circulating. And we were just there in this very charming uh, little hotel. And I'd fallen asleep, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, I sort of awoke to this just unbelievable just melody coming into my room. And I, I actually, you know, first I thought I was dreaming and then I was just like, what is it? It was, it was very transcendent. And uh, I went into the lobby of the hotel and all of the staff had been, were gathered in a circle and they were singing. And it was honestly the most beautiful music I've, I think I've ever heard live in my life. Uh, it was just stunning. And when you went to the lab, they were doing the same yeah, thing? Yeah, so I think there they gather like a little bit before eight. And so I got to kind of see all the different groups gathering and singing and starting the day that way. That's so interesting. And it, what does it do for the, the people who work together, And do you think? What, why, why do they do it? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, they do it because it's sort of their tradition. But, um, but at, I uh, and music is very much part of their culture and how they interact with each other. But I think that it's so important because, um, particularly like when I think about the lab, just how heavy the work is that they have to do every day, where they're you know diagnosing and you know are regularly identifying cases of Lassa virus, which has very high fatality rates. And I remember a story you know that they once told me where it's just like at a you know, certain day in the office, like you might have two or three people that you're really, tr you're fighting for that die. Um, and so how, you know, it's, it's so core to us to develop strength and to, and have purpose and meaning. And also just this kind of partnership with each other. Um, you know, when mm. you sing together, you really recognize the humanity of the other people that you're working with too. And um, so it's, so beautiful and so important. And allied with that is this amazing thing about you. You're not only a rock star as a scientist, you're, you're an actual rock star uh, as, as, a, as a musician. That, well, that might be extreme, but I do rock music, if that's what you mean. Yeah, so well, you have an indie group, a band called what? Thousand Days. How did you get the name Thousand Days? Where did it come from? Um, it's like the one name that came up when we were forming a band that nobody hated. Uh, that would be the starting <laughs> That's probably a terrible way to come up with a band name, but it was literally like every, yeah, I had all these kind of girly names that they're like, no. Uh, and they had, uh, they were sort of a metal band before and uh, they had a lot of names I just couldn't live with. Well, it and sounds like the mutation that survived. It, it is true. It is true. And sometimes it's the one that just slips through. When I breathe in, I breathe in. 
how do you fit the music in to all of this extremely time-consuming work you do? It's, I, don't, I don't see how you can do it. it, it I, I do understand how you're attracted to both science and music at the same time, because I couldn't agree more with something I read you said, that people don't realize how creative science is and at the same time how rigorous music is. And all art mm -hmm. is rigorous and all science is creative. You don't have to prove that a song is better than another song the way you do <laughs> in science, that one idea is more workable than another. But it still has to be rigorous. Not every, f not every color will do in a painting. Not every note will do in a song. And then you have interpretation, which is immeasurable, incalculable. Mm -hmm. So there is this similarity to the two of them. And I think you, you pick up on that and kind of use that similarity. So you, when you asked me before about this idea of how do I do both, I mean, I'm a, I'm a scientist. That's my sort of like, that, you know, that, that's, that's the main thing I know that I can contribute um, to the world, and that's where I kind of come from. And as a musician, I have this different perspective, right? I, I wrote a song during the Ebola outbreak that was like a very sp specific kind of perspective. Um, but the reason, the way I kind of uh, put it together is just it's not – I usually do music in my free time as a way of – downloading and processing and and almost almost getting yourself stronger for the science that you do. But I also find that when I'm being my most creative scientifically, when I'm in a really deep process of developing something, it's when I'll sort of wake up in the morning and have a new melody in my head. It's almost as if the creative process of the brain starts doing both things simultaneously. And so I'll mm. literally come up with random songs in the moments where I'm the most focused on science, um, some of my best work. And it's a beautiful way to be able to give voice to the things that, you know, that are deeply aspirational and deeply frightening at the same time. And so um, it's been really important for me as well, um, just the same way that those musicians, you know, their souls are fed before they work on Lassa virus in the field. My soul is fed by doing music. And you have one or two albums with some of the people from your labs that you've worked with, or how did you draw on those singers? Yeah, um, we have a summer program here in Boston where we've had 76 scientists come from six different countries. And uh, and one of the things that we kind of incorporate into that is that we sing together the way they sing in their home countries in West Africa. And uh, one of the years um, I kind of booked, actually, I guess two over two of the years, I booked studio time and we recorded music. So it was with the different um, folks from the West African countries that we work with while they're here in the United States. I've heard just a little bit of that, and it really is lovely. Oh, thank you. Sitting here in this room, watching Was your life, your own personal life, a conjunction of being in two worlds at the same time? And I, I know your family came from Tehran. Mm -hmm. um, were you born in Florida when they moved to Florida, or were you born in Tehran? I was born in Tehran. Um, 
Yeah. And so you came to the States when you were, what, about three? Uh, nearly three, yeah. And you grew up as an American kid, but were, did you still have a sense of, or were you, were you informed by people around you that you were different? No, I mean, we, my, my parents really wanted us to, I mean, I spoke Farsi at home and I still speak Farsi with my family and with my son, but we, we definitely took kind of full throttle to the um, American way of being. And, mm. and so I, the only thing kind of that stuck out about me is I had a weird name, but then people just made fun of it and I became participial phrase and you know, party. What do you mean? I just had a lot of nicknames, you know, like so a lot of crazy nicknames, but um, yeah, I didn't feel that sense of an outsider. It's funny. I, I grew up in a show business family and I always felt I was an outsider in my own culture. I mean, I was certainly an outsider more because I like math and didn't realize that it, it, uh, it wasn't okay that girls play football. But like, I, I, I guess the one thing I say about growing up in a different culture is that you don't know the rules of that culture. And so you break all the rules. And I think that was yeah. great for me. So I did get I did get kind of picked on a lot, but not for being uh, from a different country, but just for being strange. I mean, I was the kid who hung out with the math teacher. I mean, I was really quite, uh, you know, and did like science problems for fun. And I was the girl who um, played football at lunch with the boys whenever all the other people were just like, why are you doing that? And I guess I just... <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I remember one time a, a bunch of girls, like, kind of gathered around. They're like, so we see you playing football. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, you know, girls don't do that. And I was like, why wouldn't you? It's so fun. Like, I don't get it. It's really, really fun. Like, you should play. Um, and that was it. I mean, I don't know. That was That's amazing. How old were you at that point in that conversation? I think it must have been seventh grade. So I was probably like 12. Um, yeah, 12, 12 13. so interesting that you had the, the sense of yourself. Talk about having your own voice. <laughs> You knew who you were, so you could say, well, it's great. Why don't you do it? It's fun. Yeah. Again, that, it wasn't that adaptive to the environment, but yes, I mean. I, <laughs> <laughs> so did the girls shun you a little bit? Um, yeah. The funny thing is a lot of them are my best friends now, but and we joke about it because they're like, we were mean to you. I'm like, yeah, you know. How lucky you were that you had the strength to withstand other girls coming up to you and telling you you should be more stereotypically girly. You shouldn't play football. They probably people probably regarded you uh, in an odd as an odd person for being a girl who liked math. Just uh -huh. it wasn't so much a girl doing math; it was like literally anybody excited about math. Anybody. Didn't make sense. <laughs> you, <laughs> I mean, I was. Uh, I gotta be honest. I was really excited about math, like really excited. Yeah. So yeah. When we come back, we find out why the annual holiday card at Pardish's lab has become such a big part of its identity, and why her suffering a near-fatal accident bonded her team even more tightly after this short break. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement. 
including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Pardi Sabeti. One of the things you do, I've read, is you spend a, a good amount of time each year working up a, a good Christmas card where folks from the lab collaborate on that. Is mm-hmm. that, that is part of the fun that you introduce into the work? Yeah, that, that, is, that card has become, yeah, has taken on a real life of its own. But it just, it started my first year um, as I, I was starting a faculty. And at that point, I didn't have, you know, family. And so... Uh, like a family of my own, you know, I was, uh, um, and a lot of my friends had gone off and they had kids and they were sending all these photos of their kids for the holidays. And I thought, well, I don't have kids, but I do have this lab and they're kind of like a family. And so I went to Kmart and bought a bunch of kind of the ugly sweaters and like a menorah and all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, multicultural items, holiday items. And uh, we took this ridiculous card and then that became a tradition. And over time, I've had I just have really talented people in my lab who've taken it up, you know, an octave like essentially every time. And we have celebrity guest appearances. We'd love to get you in a card. Um, we'd, I'd love to be in it. Thank this, you. That would be great. So, <laughs> you know, this reminds me of my friend in Israel, Uri Alon, who mm-hmm. is also a computational biologist. You you know Uri? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he's a, a wonderful well. guy, and he himself is an improviser and goes out every week with a troop of improvisers. But he introduces this element of human contact into his lab mm-hmm. uh, every, uh, I think, once a week when somebody is designated to present their work to the rest of the people in the lab. They don't talk about the work at all for the first 15 or 20 minutes. They only are allowed to talk about how their week is gone or their mothers or their pets or something personal and in their daily lives. And then when they talk about the work, he says what would ordinarily be hostile criticism or aggressive pushback is more collaborative and the the questions are more positive and leading somewhere. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, that's a lovely idea. Um, And, uh, Definitely. I mean, that resonates for sure. Well, you know, the holiday card, it's the each year the new people in the lab are the ones that do it. Um, so to kind of get them connected into the lab and core to, to everyone there and also have a project that they all work on together and bond through. Um, and it, it is it, it is it's a, it's a great training because they do like have this other experience with each other that's sort of fun and playful. And uh, and I often also talk about the fact that the um, right, right before the Ebola outbreak hit, my lab had done a retreat down in my parents' place uh, in Florida, and you know spent many days kind of all piled into a you know relatively small house for that many people, um, c- camping and tents and this kind of very uh, kind of goofy environment. Um, but 
but it was we were so bonded through that. And we had done so many of these team building exercises that when we came back and just a couple of weeks later, um, we were getting, you know, Ebola hit and we had to like move into action. It was really natural for everyone to just team up as partners and and move. We moved so quickly. And I, I don't think we would have ever done that if we hadn't just had that experience together. That I've found that to be true in so many kind, different kinds of situations. When I've directed movies, sometimes the most important part of any rehearsal period I had was not rehearsing the scenes, but going out to dinner together and finding out who we were as people. Mm-hmm. And then I read an interview with Kurosawa, the Japanese director, who said exactly the same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So it it must be universal that if we can make human contact with one another, the work we have to do together runs more smoothly. Yeah. We know who we're working with, who we're collaborating with. Yeah, and we care about them, you know, and their sort of their narrative and their who who they are and what they w- they want to be. So I think that's that's yeah. That that all hits home. Um my lab is quite ridiculously like in love with each other. It's a very, it's a nice, it's, I, I have to say like, I even, I had a very bad accident and was gone for four, for like several months or four months. I think I was stranded on the West. You, you, you have what, how, 36 plates in your body now uh, or something like that? Six plates and 30 kind of very giant rods. Oh my God. What happened to you? What was the accident? I was just at a conference, a scientific conference where they were um, in Montana and they were, I was on a, sort of a, on a convoy of uh, vehicles that were going around the month, like the, where the area was, where the conference was. And uh, I was a passenger on a vehicle that clipped the curve and went over, went over a cliff. And I got, I was catapulted onto boulders. Um, so uh. I try, I, exp- I give a lot of explanation because I'm like, I'm actually not a, even though my work is very risky, I'm, I'm like a very non-risk taker. I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't do any thrill-seeking activity. I was literally just on this random convoy that happened to go over a cliff. Um, <laughs> An innocent bystander. I was a passenger. Yeah, I was just kind of hanging out. So, but anyway, that, that so of all the things I do, that was sort of just this random scientific conference was when the, their tech conference. So that must have held back your work for quite a while. You know, it, it, it did, but my lab was amazing about just all banding together, becoming even stronger. And uh, they're a very resilient organization. So we definitely obviously took you know, uh, a hit, but they, they did a great job. Do you find, have you found in work in your lab that women scientists have an extra bit of work to do to be able to be themselves, to be authentic, authentically who they are, and to display the authority that they have by virtue of their experience and work so that they're not considered to by by a by a stereotypical thinking male in the lab that if they're too authoritarian they're tough to get along with or if they're too uh, gentle they're they don't know much and they're a pushover do they have it am i saying this in a way that sounds familiar um, to you it does sound very familiar to me it doesn't sound that familiar to me in my own lab i have a lot of alpha females so i've got a lot of <laughs> i i mean, I, I love it they're i mean they are and, and we create an environment where they feel very comfortable but it's, a lot of the leadership positions in my lab are women and they're uh, awesome at what they do. Um, and they're assertive and they're finding their own voice. Um, I, I, you know, 
I, people often say it's a man's world, and I'm like, it's not really a man's world. Even it's it's a certain. It's sometimes it's sort of uh, like I I have a something I probably shouldn't say in a podcast, but like a different way of saying it. But it's <laughs> it's a not so nice person's world sometimes, right? For me, uh, so take fill in the blank of any way you describe a not so nice person. But um, I think that you know I, I I try to help the both the men and the women in my lab find their own voice and find the way that they do. De- describe mm-hmm. things. And I feel like there are a lot of really nice guys out there who don't, aren't able to present in the same way. So I, I do try to build up people in my lab, but I do it on both sides. And I, um, and I think it comes down to personality. I, more broadly, I think my, my lab is its own ecosystem. And you imagine that people that come to work with a female PI have a certain mindset and a certain way of going. I do try to prepare them for the outside world in which um, people won't be so open to the way like we approach the world? Yeah, that sounds like an important question because it, the the outside world is very often directly opposed to the idea of play and openness. I mean, the the very idea that you collected all your data in in your early work on Ebola and made it available to scientists around the world. You were you were very open about that. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. And that 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 already is a departure. Yeah. Well, so that's a de- I mean, it's a departure in in that field, which is surprising actually, because yeah. in the larger uh, Eric Lander, who you know is my longtime advisor, and he, you know he's driven by this sense of enabling science and making things open. So I, you know, I, I come from a history of that. It, it, to me, it wasn't even almost a question that you should share, and particularly in an event where there's so much on the line and there's so many lives at stake, it's it's unconscionable not to, right? To not to try to move as quickly as possible. And so, what's interesting is that during that point in time, during the outbreak, um, as as you might imagine, or or you might not think about, but that you could imagine is that there's a lot of politics. There's a lot at stake, a lot of money to be made, a lot of careers to be made during an outbreak. And shockingly, um, a lot of times that's more of a strong motivator than to fight off this terrible thing that's happening. Um, And I remember during that time being like, everyone's so concerned that we're going to do something and get our data out and to be successful. And that's not what it's about. So I told the I asked the first author Stephen Geyer. I said, "Look, my instinct is just to share this with the world. Like, this is not what we're doing it for. Is that okay with you?" And he was like, "Absolutely." I mean, he was on the same page, and we just released it to the world. And the kind of irony of it is that I got a lot of recognition on the back of this sort of tragic event, um, but all the recognition I got was for not caring about recognition and releasing the data. <laughs> and so, That's so that was sort great. of fitting, all right. Um, uh, and yeah. and I hope that, like, while it's sad to me that the natural instinct isn't there to do the right thing, I, it, it's nice that when the right the right thing is actually recognized, because that means that other people might do the right thing, even if for the wrong reasons. You know, this is interesting in and of itself, but at a deeper level, I find it really fascinating. The question of your ability to make breakthroughs and inroads with a genetic analysis of the human response to Ebola, for instance. And yet you talk about being open and open to the world, open to possibility, open to change. My career actually has taken a lot of different turns um, because I, I feel as if I'm not 
there's not one problem I'm trying to solve. I'm interested in a lot of different things. And one thing I'm actually interested in, even scientifically right now, is different ways of thought, different, like, kind of, I may move a little bit into cognitive sciences. I do, I'm, I'm excited about thinking about that more, about thinking about truly understanding how people come at the world in very different ways, and then how to help them become their best selves. At what point do you say, I've got a flag planted firmly in the field I'm in and leave yourself open to exploring something that may have a dead end at the other end of it? At what point do you take that risk? What do you go through when you take a risk like that? How did it, it, It's one thing to be open. It's another thing to be reckless, and you don't seem reckless. It's interesting because I have a lab, and so that decision-making is not just me. Uh, so for me, it's really just what interests me and what do I think I can add value to the world. Um, for my students, it's what can give them good projects and, and where can we go. But, you know, like— I'm I'm still invested in in outbreaks and responding to outbreaks, but at the same time, um, there's a lot of people who are now doing it more and more. And I think we had a contribution ad, and the question is, can I add more? I have a lot of ideas still, and we're trying to get support to do it. But there's a lot of people who've gotten, I'll say, just have gotten a lot more support to me to do the things that I'd like to do. So I'm like, well, if I don't really even have support to do the work I'm doing. What you know? Then I then what would I be doing exactly? And so I'm I'm I I have a feeling I'm never going to be one of those people that gets like a lot of money to to go after an idea. And so I'd rather if that's going to be the case, and that's okay. I'm not an empire builder. Then then I'd rather do things that are like off the beaten track that nobody else cares about. And then I, I think every time I've gone into a field everybody's escaping. And and in fact, actually, like right now... <laughs> Everybody's getting out of the field yeah, and you're getting And I was like, okay, now I'm ready. I'm ready to go. This is my time. So, uh, Well, yeah. you're led by what interests you. What that's, and that's, the, that's, to me, the same thing as being playful. Mm. Something that, you know, like a cat, is uh, her attention is caught by the ball of yarn. And it seems important to unravel the ball. And I, I recognize that as... As the fun of existence is solving problems that seem trivial, and may and and they often turn out to be very important. So the the thing is, is like, is it a, is it really just a ball of yarn, you know, or is there yeah, is there yeah, something at the end, to, end of it? But so there's there's some voice in the back of your head telling you this this ball of yarn has gold in it. Yeah, I think that I, I and so far it's guided me very very well. When you know when an idea just sticks with me and I can't shake it, I have to kind of figure out what what you know what what's driving that. Um, and so I do. I feel as if um, I trust my own instinct as to where it's going to kind of get me. That confidence you have, that sounds so important to your work because if you keep attacking problems that other people have thought were already solved and they're not worth going into further and you go further and deeper and you find something of value at a deeper level – that takes a, the same kind of confidence that it took to play football as a kid with the boys when the girls were telling you girls don't do that. And it was a good-natured confidence the way you described it. It wasn't – you weren't waving a flag or making a, a movement. You were just saying, no, I like it. I'm going to keep doing it. And, I, and it's okay if you object to it. Well, 
this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm getting looks from the control room that I'm out of control. <laughs> okay. I, I may I, I may be responsible partly for that at least. So <laughs> we usually end these uh, conversations with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Are you up for that? Yeah, I love it. They're um, they're they're roughly about communicating and relating. Okay. First question: What do you wish you really understood? Uh, oh, okay. I wish I really understood. Uh, our place in the universe. Um, I always say that that's something that science and religion shares, that, that ultimately we're all trying to figure out our place in the universe. But I actually want to know, you know, what is after this? Um, I think it's just a big question that everybody has and everyone tries to get at it a different way. But um, And I've actually sat with friends and tried to see if we could bridge metaphysics and get to the answer somehow. But I don't, I think it's going to be a hard problem, but I'm still working on it. Oh, that's a that's a rich answer. You, you, <laughs> you have give, already given more thought to that than most people <laughs> I ask. So, number two, what do you wish other people understood about you? I mean— doesn't sound like you care what other yeah, people I, no, think. Yeah, no, and that's <laughs> terrible. I know I should. I should care. I, I, well, I'm trying to think. I'm very, I'm very transparent. So I, you know, like I kind of say everything. Um, I, uh, I guess you know that I, I come in peace. I mean well. I'm excited. I'm here to help. I think that's what I'm always trying to convey. And so, uh, but there's probably things that I still need to understand about what drives me, what motivates me in my unconscious that I would then want to then convey once I get it. Well, I think you're ready for the next question, which okay. is, what is the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> yeah. Well, these, I mean, uh, these are uh, these are these are up there. These are different. <laughs> All right, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Wow. Okay. Um, hmm. That this one might be the strangest question I've ever gotten. If I had to say it, <laughs> a, I think I think they're going to get all, okay, that same rating. They're going to go down and down each time. I'll be like, and this is the most. Um, do you have? Do you, I mean, what do you do when you're confronted with? We all are confronted are, with compulsive know, talkers. It's funny, actually. Well, how do you how do you uh, typically handle it? I mean, I I kind of usually go with it. I think, but or. Um, I, you know, I, I often, now I often go with it because I'm interested in just human nature. I, I actually enjoy l like figuring out where they're trying to go with it. What are they trying to convey and what are they doing? And so I kind yeah. of, I find myself absorbed in everything about them and what they're doing. And uh, so, yes, I mean, at some point I'll then have to go and that'll just end it. Right. But, um, but that's interesting. I, I find myself reacting to them with curiosity and that kind of make, begins to make it a two-way street. Yeah, I, you know, I, why, I, why do you why do you feel that way? Or, or, or that's interesting. How did that come about? And, that, and all of a sudden, we're talking about something that's more shared by us. Yeah. Okay. Here's the next question: Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? No, I have a deep, deep amount of empathy for everyone. Um, and sometimes, you know, it, it's it's. Wild. I mean, I um, I remember when I was in medical school and I was on a psych rotation, and I was we were talking to a, a, a schizophrenic patient, and they were talking about the voices in their head telling them to kill people, and I just felt so much pain for them, and it made me walk away and say, like, I don't understand what is volition, what is responsibility, mm -hmm. um, and I remember thinking that day, you know oh my God, I'd rather be killed by a serial killer than be a serial killer. And how awful must that mm. existence be? So it's not that I wouldn't, you know, stop a serial killer from inflicting more pain, but I 
I have a deep, deep amount of empathy for them. And I think that's, yeah, something we collectively, I feel like the health of every person on the planet is sort of our health. And it's important to figure that out. Okay. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> um, it really depends on the type of bad news. I mean, generally, I like to do it in person, but sometimes I'll do it in an email so that the not so the person has time to absorb it and take it in, right? So I think about I try to think about it from the perspective of how would I want this information myself? Um, mm. And I don't want to put people on the spot. And so um, i'll I'll think about like what is the best way for them? Okay, last question. Mm-hmm. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Why are we getting so like this is this is getting <laughs> heavy, <laughs> heavy. <laughs> um, have I ended friendships? I mean, obviously, I've ended relationships. um, and I've and and to me, I, you know, I'm one of these people that's like best friends with all of my exes and uh, um, mm. I, I don't, I, cause I, I find it really hard to totally cut out somebody in your life who knows you in some way. I, but I, you have to set boundaries around if there's something that's like where there's true misbehavior, you have to set boundaries around what you can take and what you can't take. But I try to always mm. like leave an opening for people. Um, and so there's definitely people who I have decreased my time with or put boundaries around how I interact with them. Um, mm. But uh, but I don't necessarily ever say like, and you're done. I, I look for a true redemption of a situation. Um, if, if there can be one, I'm open to it. Well, you're a deeply interesting person. <laughs> and, and the deeper we got into the questions, the, the more interesting you got. Okay, so I really, I really appreciate your diving in there. Thank, Thank you. you. It, was a, it was really fun talking with you, Pat. Yeah, it was uh, really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been, yeah, I've been excited about this ever since we started talking about it. So. Oh, great. Thank <laughs> you. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Pardi Sabeti is a tremendously accomplished person. She's been a Rhodes Scholar. She was named one of Time Magazine's People of the Year for her work on the Ebola virus. She's been awarded numerous fellowships, too many to mention here. And she now serves as the professor at the Center for Systems Biology and Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University and the Department of Immunology and Infectious Disease at the Harvard School of Public Health. And if that's not enough, you'll also find her nurturing her multifaceted creative side as the lead singer and co-songwriter of the rock band Thousand Days. For more information about Pardis and her work, please visit sabetilab.org. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. 
You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Dave Flink, whose own struggles with dyslexia and ADHD were the inspiration for a program that has now helped thousands of others to overcome difficulties with learning. I think things like dyslexia and ADHD can be a part of your identity in positive ways without discounting the real negative experiences. But on the other side of those challenges are stories of joy, stories of accomplishment, stories that are about potential. And I think it's one of the things that I, I could never have guessed at 18 that I would get to do in my life. Dave Flink and the struggles and joys of learning to learn differently next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these podcasts, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. <laughs>